Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. Stick around for the next half hour. We have all the science that you need for this week. My name is Claire and today on the show I'm going to be talking about the benefits, the scientific benefits of having green spaces around the place that you live. Not necessarily walking around in those green spaces, but just having them in your area, in your community. Do you mean just getting a whole bunch of green paint and going (laughs) crazy, just painting things green? (laughs) By green spaces, I mean trees, grass, shrubberies. Shrubberies. (laughs) That that sort of thing. Um, And there has been some new research that reinvigorated a whole lot of vacant blocks around the city of Philadelphia and given them a clean up planted some grass and and then tracked how the residents, if there has been an effect on their mental health as a result. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. So um, stay tuned for the results of that. How about you, Stu? What have you got for us today? I'm actually talking about blue spaces. Oh, so when you get some blue paint. Yeah, and just splash it around. No, no, no. Actually, I'm talking about, or I'm talking with Dr. Paul Carnell about wetlands and one of the things... Green and blue, really. Yeah, I guess. Um, they're, they're a bit sloshy. Probably brown <laughs> Probably as well. Probably brown yeah. more than green or blue. Yeah. Um, they, they, do, they do talk about it in terms of blue spaces because they talk about blue carbon and how oceans and water courses and waterways and things like that absorb carbon. Right. Okay. From, from the atmosphere. Algae, from well, the all algae. sorts of things. Mm. So, yeah. So, there's, you know terrestrial forests and things like that which absorb a certain amount of carbon but the wetlands of the world or of australia in particular absorb a lot of carbon out of the atmosphere and it doesn't get out again wow so it sort of gets trapped in the wetlands that is the sort of carbon capture that we want that's what we really need that's what we need wow um so dr paul carnell yes from deakin university and the other thing that we should mention is that it is coming up to National Science Week in a matter of weeks, starting on the 11th of August. And Lost in Science has a special National Science Week uh, 3CR fundraiser. Yes, we are having, <laughs> um, for those who are in Melbourne, we are having our annual Science Week trivia night. It is like the biggest thing of Science Week of the year of, of this town. And it's our fifth annual trivia night. Number five, that is pretty special. Number five, five is alive. alive. Yes. <laughs> Number five is alive. We're about to go to school. So that is uh, that is uh, Monday, the 13th of August. As usual, it is at the Birmingham Hotel on the corner of Smith Street and Johnson Street in Collingwood. It is. It starts at 6.30. Well, I think we normally start the questions at 7.30, so we ask people to turn up at 6.30 so they can settle in. And, yeah, it's a great night. And it's the, it is to raise money for 3CR and Lost in Science. So um, we do ask you to pay $20 on the night. Keep community radio on the air. Keep community radio science on the air. On with the show. All right, so how often do you go to the park 
or walk on the grass, uh, look at greenery, trees, that sort of thing? Pretty much every day. Every day, good, yeah. yeah. But I live in a pretty green part of the world, so. You're also a gardener. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and I teach horticulture, so. You I, teach I kind people of, to look at green things. Yeah, I kind, of, I kind of have to go out there and look at things, whether I want to or not. <laughs> Well, I went on a walk yesterday in my neighbourhood um, and walked past the council tearing up uh, Ashfeld on the on the road. And it's just happening a couple of streets away from me and turns out they're closing the street down and putting in a park instead, rewilding the street, so to speak. I mean, if you classify rewilding as a highly planned and landscaped version of the wild, then it's rewilding. Um, but they're turning it into a green space. And it got me thinking about the impact of green spaces. Are they just nice places to stroll, for dogs to um, take a poop on, or do they have a measurable effect on our mental and physical health? Now, there have been quite a few scientific studies looking at this sort of thing. In terms of behaviours and actions, one study from the University of Rochester found that after looking at natural scenes, green spaces, people are noticeably more kind to one another and more charitable. So there you go. <laughs> so just, just from, do they actually have to be in the green space or they just no, can see pictures of they it? They just have to see pictures of it. So, oh, wow. Um, there's like a famous like example, uh, Robin Hood, he lived in a forest and he told from the rich and gave to the poor. So that's, I think that's his, his charitable works were related to living in the forest. Absolutely. Empirical evidence. Empirical yeah. evidence. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the experiment included around 370 people. More than Robin Hood's of just n equals one. He did, he did Were they not, merry men. Well, he didn't. He didn't have three hundred and seventy merry men. I'm okay. pretty sure there was fewer than that. So the participants, the people in the study, they were shown either urban settings or natural settings. Now, the people who looked at the natural settings were uh, were asked how much they valued close relationships and community before and then after they looked at nature. And afterwards, they placed a higher value on um, these close relationships and community than they did beforehand, whereas the people who were shown urban settings um, placed more value on wealth and fame. So, yeah. Hmm. than they did beforehand. Interesting to know if, like, I mean, urban <laughs> settings are also probably more likely to involve people. And so showing pictures of people going, oh, no. Don't like them so much. I don't think there were people involved oh, in okay. the yeah, scenes. But, um, but yeah, it is interesting that the built environment makes you value this wealth um, and fame specifically. Like it makes you think of material things. Mm, yeah. Interestingly, also, those who viewed nat- natural scenes were more likely to give higher amounts of money to a good cause. Which makes me think for um, that's a good tip for people out there who are trying to fundraise for charities. Uh, make sure the person you're trying to get money off is looking at trees when you're asking them. Hold a branch. <laughs> Hold a branch. Hold out an olive branch. No. Maybe. Or maybe 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 just find a street tree and stand under the street tree instead of <laughs> instead of trying to catch them at the lights or at the train station. Yes, exactly. exactly. Find find a street tree and stand under the tree instead. Find just a little. Just take some. Oh, I wonder if it works with astroturf. Just take around a bit of <laughs> astroturf and stand on it wherever you are. Anyway, there's also research to suggest that children with ADHD have an easier time concentrating when they spend time outdoors. 
And if you work in an office, I'm sure you'll be glad to know that a 2008 study found that for office workers, a mere glimpse of green through a window or a live plant on their desk was associated with lower stress levels and higher job satisfaction. So everyone out there who doesn't have a pot plant on their desk, now is the time if you want to reduce your stress. So it's all very well if you've got access to a window at your desk. For that plant to survive. It's a bit more difficult if you're you're in the broom cupboard under the stairs. (laughs) That's true. Office space is limited. Yep. Um, so there is evidence that points towards this link between green spaces and a reduction in stress. Um, and now new research has taken this idea one step further. Some scientists from the University of Pennsylvania wanted to test whether there would be a noticeable improvement in overall mental health in a community if they made some inexpensive greening um, changes to vacant blocks in the neighbourhoods around Philadelphia in the U.S., So this isn't creating expensive new parks like around the corner from me and just ripping up the asphalt and whatnot. This is just taking abandoned lots, greening them, cleaning out the trash um, and seeing if there's any improvement. The study had around 450 people living in Philadelphia and um, they took the city and they split it into three groups. So the first group of vacant blocks in one part of the city, they removed the trash, they planted grass... Um, they evened out the ground a bit and they put in a couple of trees. So not huge things, but just some key changes with greenery and removing the trash. The second group, they just removed the trash. They didn't do any greening. And then the third group of vacant blocks got nothing. That was just the control. And then over an 18-month period, the participants were asked to self-report their mental health Um, how they were feeling, feelings of depression, uh, feelings of anxiety and all that, that sort of thing. Um, Now, what would you expect from this? Do you think that there will be any change between people who had green vacant blocks compared to people who had trashy vacant blocks? I think, yeah, I think people who are surrounded by garbage and stuff, rubbish, uh, will feel less happy about things. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, that's that's what they found. Um, the people living near the grassy vacant blocks were less likely to report depression and also feelings of worthlessness. This was only the case with the greened up vacant blocks. If you lived near the vacant blocks that just had the trash removed, um, you didn't get those same effects. They weren't statistically significant anyway. Hmm. Yeah, so the researchers made a special point to highlight that as there is a link between low socioeconomic communities and mental illness than by creating and focusing on these sort of like low-cost interventions like cleaning and greening vacant blocks that are already there, you're able to help neighbourhoods in one small way. I mean, obviously there are a lot of other interventions that can be done, but in terms of um, for people in the community, this is is just one one of those approaches. And for everybody else out there, a good reminder to get out into those green spaces And clear your mind. Now, to get you in the mood, I thought I would play some vintage David Attenborough. After an hour, I found on the forest floor the rinds and cores of durian fruit, which I knew was the favourite food of the orang-utan. I showed it to the dyer who had come with me, and he confirmed what I had hoped. The way in which it had been chewed showed that it had been eaten by an orang-utan. One must have been here 
early this morning. We looked up to see where the fruit had come from. And there, 50 feet above us, we saw a nest. Did one sleep there, I asked. Yes, he said, one was there last night. So the trail must still be warm and the ape was probably quite close. A few minutes later, we heard a crashing in the branches ahead. And there, only a few yards away, we spotted a great furry red form swaying in the trees. Far from being frightened of our presence, he showed little inclination to dash away through the trees, but just hung there, screaming and breaking off branches to throw down at us. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you are listening to A Lost in Science. One of the issues that faces researchers into global carbon emissions and greenhouse gas emissions in general is that the level of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases in the air fluctuates throughout the year and over the years as well, due in part to natural processes and the biological effect of naturally occurring ecosystems that are present in the world. In Australia, researchers have found that wetlands play a big role in sequestering carbon, which would otherwise escape into the atmosphere. And I have with me Dr. Paul Carnell, who's a research fellow at the Centre for Integrative Ecology at Deakin University, to talk about what wetlands do as far or how they interact with uh, carbon and carbon emissions. Thanks for joining us on Lost in Science, Paul. Don't worry, Stuart. Uh, thanks for having me. So you have recently been doing some work on wetlands in Victoria specifically. Mm. Now, in what way do wetlands interact with carbon in the atmosphere? Yeah, so most people might be familiar with uh, trees uh, trapping and, and storing carbon uh, and they're mostly doing that in the plant material. So, you know, you look at that tree uh, and it's taking up carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and then it's converting it into its plant tissue. Uh, so it makes it makes it into sugar and into wood as well? Yeah, right. that's right. And, and so we call that organic carbon. And wetlands are kind of similar. So, you know, there's plants in there and they're doing a similar thing. But instead, where they're storing all of their carbon is actually in the ground. And so when you go into a wetland and there's that really muddy soil, well, the conditions in a wetland make it perfect for storing uh, a range of organic carbon then into the ground. Uh, so it's almost kind of like the reverse process of then digging up, say, coal or other things and then burning it, and that's releasing emissions uh, in the wetlands, they're storing carbon back into the ground. So it's actually being stored in the in the soil in the wetlands? Yeah, so that's right. So each year there's additional soil and plant material that's being added 
Uh, and so over time, we actually see an increase in the amount of soil that that is there. Um, and so that's that year-to-year carbon sequestration that is happening in these wetlands. Um, so the main way that we study that is to then go out and take soil cores and we look at, uh, at all the carbon that's being stored in there. Uh, sometimes we can even age date the soil going down too, and that's how we figure out at what how much is it you know accumulated over the last hundred years or or, or, or uh, two hundred years. So, what is it about wetlands specifically that traps the carbon in the soil, whereas in you know in other kinds of vegetation or other kinds of ecosystems, the carbon is I guess released from the soil? Is that how it works in other systems? Yeah, so um, I guess if you think about, say, like a compost uh, is often a good analogy that we use. You know, if you're wanting your compost material to break down really quickly and, you know, it turn into soil really quickly, you, know, you want to keep it really aerated and you kind of mix it around. You want to encourage the right kind of bacteria and microbes in there. And that breaks it down really quickly, which is good for composting because we want it to turn into soil. But I guess it's kind of the opposite soil carbon in that uh, actually conditions where bacteria can't break the carbon down uh, and where it kind of preserves the carbon in the way that it was. Um, And and so wetlands are good because you often get this kind of anoxic environment uh, pretty quickly and it means that, you know, you say you have leaves or other plant material fall into the wetland and effectively they just won't be broken down as much. And so they kind of almost get preserved in the soil uh, a lot better than, say, in a, in a uh, terrestrial system. Um, so we find this really high amounts of, of carbon in the soil even as you go down through the depth. So there's just these really perfect conditions that uh, effectively prohibit the carbon being broken down as much uh, as it otherwise might be. So they're trapping carbon all the time. How much carbon would they be uh, capturing in, in the wetlands? And I, I know you've been looking at Victorian wetlands specifically. In Victoria, how much do they account for or, or how much carbon do they actually capture? We were lucky enough to get the job to, to drive around Victoria and we sampled uh, 100 different wetlands to look at the carbon that's being stored there. Uh, and, then, and then for some of those, uh, we, we also got numbers about how much is being stored each year. And so when we kind of average that out across the state and you know, using the data that we have, it, it turns out to be about 3 million tonnes worth of carbon, um, which is a big number and it's kind of hard to figure out exactly what that really means. We then convert it to how much the average Australian releases in terms of uh, carbon each year, uh, which is uh, 18 tonnes of carbon dioxide, so that number then comes out to about 185,000 people's worth of carbon emissions each year is, is probably the best way to think about it. And, and that's how much is being trapped in the Victorian wetlands? Yeah, that's right. So across the rest of Australia, we don't really have as much information, so it's kind of hard to, to give estimates like that across Australia at the moment. But, uh, yeah, for Victoria, that's, that's uh, the number we've got. So, far. <laughs> so it'd probably be worth checking, you know, finding out that data for other areas in Australia as well. You are listening to Lost in Science on the Community Radio Network. And our guest on the show today, talking with Stu, is Dr. Paul Carnell, 
whose research focuses on carbon sequestration in wetlands. As far as it goes, I mean, wetlands are often less desirable parts of land. It's, it's difficult to build on them and they're not much good for grazing or cropping or any of those other things that land gets cleared for. Are wetlands actually at risk from, from land clearing and development? Yeah, well, and it's probably particularly happened a lot in the past. Um, so, and I guess, uh, you know, like you mentioned, you might have a wetland, so it doesn't make it good, let's say, doing uh, some activities. So what they tended to do in the past is actually to maybe drain them. So they might put a drain through it or try and divert the water in some way. Um, so actually, over the last uh, 200 years since, since uh, Europeans uh, settled uh, here in Victoria, We've actually lost about 200,000 hectares uh, worth of wetlands. Um, and we currently have about five, uh, about 500,000 hectares. So, yeah, that's a fair amount. <laughs> so we've lost, lost about a third, more or yeah. less? Yeah, that's right. Um, so, and what happens particularly when you drain a wetland, then that means all of a sudden it doesn't have the water anymore and it gets exposed. To the air and to oxygen uh, and then so what we can then see is actually the carbon that was stored there actually be released back into the environment so those bacteria that really love oxygen they get in they start breaking it down and then they can actually re re-release that that carbon that was stored there yeah it's kind of a double-edged sword they're they're great at storing carbon but if we disturb them uh, then actually we start to release that carbon that's great. That's um. So we're talking about freshwater wetlands in this scenario. Mm. Is there any relation between saltwater areas and salt marshes and that sort of thing, or is that outside the scope of your study? No, it's actually uh, the the previous year we actually completed a similar project, uh, but instead focusing on the salt marsh and, and uh, mangroves and seagrass uh, across Victoria. So. Um, so yeah, so they do stack up uh, kind of similarly. Uh, the mangroves are pretty good at doing it, though. Um, the mangroves uh, tend to come out as kind of being one of the being one of the uh, carbon carbon kingpins. Um, so they store a lot of of carbon in the soil. The the other thing that the marine environments uh, have going for them too is um, so that. The freshwater ecosystems can also release uh, methane as well, um, which is another greenhouse gas. Yeah. Uh, so we need to kind of balance, you know, some of the other greenhouse gases they're releasing against the carbon they're storing in the soil. But uh, for the most part, once we move into marine environments, the the microbes and the and the bacteria that would otherwise create the methane don't really see them as much in the marine system. So uh, so we don't get that kind of uh, one of the other drawbacks from that. So uh, that's probably another plus in the marine wetland column um, because for the most part, not, not releasing as much of these other greenhouse gases. So it's a, it sounds all very much uh, all benefits and no disadvantages to, uh, to wetlands in, in uh, fresh and saltwater environments. Um, it seems like a good idea to keep an eye on these things 
because if we do disturb them, they could potentially release a whole lot more greenhouse gases to the atmosphere. Yeah, that's right. And uh, for me, you know, when I think about these wetland ecosystems, yeah, there's so many great things that they do. Uh, you know, from, say, protecting coastlines against storm surges or protecting against floods to being great areas for fish or for birds or, you know, to go for a walk or a kayak. Uh, so, yeah, the the carbon story is kind of an, just another uh, it's just another reason why uh, wetlands are so great. It's an added bonus. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and I guess, you know, when you start to add all of these different bonuses together, uh, I think that's when you realise how important these, these environments are. Um, and I guess what we're trying to develop is effectively, uh, you know, the case for protection and restoration so that whether on the protection side of things, so maybe someone wants to you know, build a development in a certain place, you then can say, well, if you do that, there will be all of these other environmental costs to doing that. It will affect the range of species. You might release a bunch of carbon. Uh, you're not going to have as many fish being produced in that area. Uh, and you kind of add all of those up, and then hopefully <laughs> uh, that will make people go, oh, maybe we shouldn't do that. Or actually, maybe we should go and plant more. Um, so, uh, yeah, I guess that's kind of the aim about a lot of uh, the work that, that we're doing at the moment. Yeah, it sounds like they certainly would be a major factor in any environmental impact study before uh, development went ahead. So, Paul, who, who was paying for this, uh, for this study of wetlands in Victoria? Uh, so the project was primarily funded by the Victorian state government. Uh, and then also contributed to by the uh, 10 catchment management authorities across Victoria, uh, as well as the uh, AMP Foundation and Deakins uh, Centre for Integrative Ecology. So, but yeah, it was great to see support from the state government. Yeah, it shows that they're really thinking seriously about uh, reducing carbon emissions and the best ways uh, to go about that. Or at least thinking about balancing their carbon accounting. Yeah, that's right. And so you want to put as much positives in in the plus column as you can. So, yeah, I think this is this is a good story for that. We'll have to wrap it up there, but I'd just like to thank you, Dr. Paul Carnell from Deakin University, for joining us to talk about wetlands and their role in carbon sequestration. Uh, thanks for coming on Lost in Science. Great. Thanks so much, Stuart. that's all we have time for on another episode of Lost in Science. Thank you very much for joining us. And a big thank you to Dr. Paul Carnell for chatting to us about wetlands this week. Lost in Science is recorded in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network with the kind support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Please get in touch with us. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us at lostinsci at gmail.com or on Twitter at Lost in Science 1, or you can find us on Facebook at Lost in Science on 3CR. 
Also, you can subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, give us a review so other people can find us as well. Or we look forward to having you along next week when Stu, Chris and Claire get lost in science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.